Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. I'm not going to say anything. Thank you, Jeremy and Refuge, and I love you. I feel loud. Am I loud? All right, I'll just keep talking. Just don't do that, don't do that loud beep thing to me that you did to Jeremy. Uh, good morning. Everybody all right? Good. Um, a while ago, I promised to not say that anymore. What was I supposed to say? Good morning. I'm glad you're here. Let me say that. I'm going to stop asking how you're doing. I'm glad you're here. Uh, and we'll just we'll say that. Um, let me give you a little warning here as I'm trying to uh, locate the passage. Uh, the passage this week uh, messed with me a lot. Um, and when we get to the application this morning, it's, it's going to depend on how fast the car is going at that point. Either, either we're going to slam on the brakes and just pray and get out of here, or we're going to be here for a while. I don't know what that's going to look like. We'll, we'll determine that in a while. Um, cool? <laughs> All right. And if you're, if you're a guest here, this is not every week, but it's not totally uncommon, um, if we're honest. So uh, we're going to continue on this week in uh, the sermon series on the parables of Jesus. And where we're at is Jesus has completed his ministry, and he is now, um, well, he, he is at the, the, really the apex of his ministry. He has entered in, into Jerusalem. He has shared parables along the way. Uh, have you ever wondered or heard people talk about when Jesus, when Jesus uh, says something, and, and then he's like, or when he heals somebody, he's like, don't, don't tell anybody, Right? And, and pastors and preachers and scholars and everybody, they, were try, they try to go, well, here's why Jesus did that. And sometimes it's, you know, people are like, ah, it's like reverse psychology, right? Jesus is like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> He's going to go tell everybody. Um, let me tell you something. That's not what Jesus is doing. Um, Jesus is bringing in this teaching slowly. He's telling parables that initially... They're more mysterious. Initially, you're like, okay, okay, the kingdom of God is like a seed. Uh, all right. I have so many questions. Um, and then the more he goes and the more he heals and the more places that he travels, he really starts to stir things up. And here's the deal. Jesus is fully human, so I don't know... I'm not going to sit here and say that all of this was perfectly mapped out by Jesus before the beginning of time. I think, obviously, Jesus knows who he is, but he is encountering people, and he's like trying to teach the kingdom of God, and as it gets more, as tensions raise, and it gets more polarized and divided, and, and on this side, they want Jesus to just give them more food, and on this side, they're like, we need to kill this guy. Uh... He continues to minister. He continues to heal. He heals people that he's not supposed to. He talks to people that he's not supposed to. He says things he's not supposed to. And by the time he gets to Jerusalem, 
the crowds are both waving their palm branches at him, and like, and, and they're, but they're about all they're all about to turn on him. So like, and, and when he gets there, his his parables, the mystery of his parables, ha, ha, have kind of gotten to a pretty refined point. And so let me read this parable this morning, and then we're going to try to break it down. And you may pick it up as we're reading through it. This is pretty direct. Jesus is not, I mean, it's pretty direct. So let me read this. It's the parable of of the wicked tenants. Uh, We're going to read from Matthew chapter 21. We'll be in verse 33 through the end of the chapter through 46. And uh, you can follow along on the screen uh, or you can can follow along in your Bibles. Uh, My Bible used to correspond with the pages in that one, but now it doesn't. Or you can follow along on your Bible app as long as you promise to stay in your app and not post quotes on Facebook and Twitter um, or play games. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, Surely they will respect my son. Verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. (laughs) And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the Elders and chief priests who were gathered around Jesus, verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the, fr- the fruits of, in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is from Psalm 118. Verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. All right, verse 45, and when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this, his parables, they perceived he was talking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, this morning, I, w- I want to start off just with this, this word, uh, authority. When you hear that word authority, what do you think of? You don't, you don't have to respond. I just want you to think, when you hear that word authority, do you have, does it have positive connotations or does it have negative connotations? Does anybody go, oh, authority, yeah, 
right? Maybe, maybe it depends. Um, maybe it depends on the, on the situation. Uh, what does it mean to have authority? Who has authority? Or who thinks they have authority? Um, who doesn't have authority? Who despises authority? Or maybe a better question, or, or more in-depth, is who despises authority because they don't have it and they want it? Or who denies their authority because the other side despises it because they think they want it and they don't have it, and it's more of a play to refuse giving it up? Authority is a tricky thing, right? We want it. We don't necessarily want other people to have it, or we're okay if they have it as long as they exercise it on other people. If they exercise authority over us, our view is like, oh, no. Authority is a tricky thing. Where we're at in the parables this morning, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, and this is his first day in the temple. And his first day in the temple, he comes in and flips over tables. Right? Because that, you know, because that's what you do. And, and Jesus walks into the temples with his disciples. He has an issue with a fig tree, uh, which we covered that a couple years ago, and we won't go back over that. But, and then he walks in, and he's sitting down by the money changers. And what he sees in the temple is this. The temple is oppressing the poor and the outsiders because they've raised the prices of sacrificial animals for outsiders during peak season. Oh, you want to come before God and make sacrifices on behalf of your sin? Prices just went up. And Jesus looks at the temple and says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer. This, this was supposed to be the dwelling place of God, and His people were supposed to be a blessing to all nations, and God would then bless those who bless Him and curse those who curse Him. What you have turned it into is a business, and you're profiteering off the very people you're supposed to be blessing. I'm not going to flip this thing over. <laughs> but then Jesus flips it over. Their question in response, by whose authority are you doing these things? Right? Now, it probably wasn't that calm. It probably wasn't like, by whose authority are you flipping over uh, the, t the tables of our money changers? Uh, the, the elders and scribes, the elders and the chief priests, they had followed Jesus around. They had seen him throughout. And now he's in the temple in Jerusalem, right? This is the big dog. This is, this is the main temple. And Jesus walks in there. Um, and, and, and so they know what's coming. Um. And so they say, by whose authority uh, are you doing this? And this is a setup. 
all the questions that they're asking Jesus, they're, they're set up. If Jesus says, I am doing this by God's authority, then they're going to charge him by the laws of Jerusalem with all the lists that they have where he's violated the Sabbath and now he's slipping over the tables. They're going to charge him with blasphemy. Easy charge. So this is a test. If he says that he's doing this authority by man, then who cares? Then they bring their religious authority over him. Um, and so they ask Jesus, by whose authority do you do this? And Jesus never gets trapped. I love it. Jesus asks them a question in return. He says, all right, I'll tell you what. I will tell you by whose authority I'm doing this. If you can answer this question for me. John, John the Baptist. Everybody loved John the Baptist, okay? And he was a martyr at this point. Uh, they saw John the Baptist as a prophet, and they followed him and loved him. And so Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you by whose authority I'm doing this. If you can tell me, John the Baptist, his baptism, who, who was his baptism in the name of? Was it God or man? And the chief scribes and the, the, the elders and the priests, they gather around and they're like, okay, so here's the deal. If we say John's baptism is by God, then we're going to validate this guy. We're going to validate Jesus and John the Baptist is going to be his prophet, the forerunner, and then that's not going to work. If we say John's baptism is by man, we got a revolt on our hands. People are going to get ticked. And so the scholars and the priests, they give a very, very, very solid answer in verse 27, and they say to Jesus, we don't know. Now, here's the deal. It's pretty easy to pick on the chief priests and the elders in these passages and throughout the New Testament, and it's easy to look at some of the parables uh, only through the lens of Judaism and Christianity, which is definitely there, uh, the Old, Old Testament people of God versus the New Testament people of God, and, and those themes and those narratives are important, uh, and I don't want to miss them and skip over them because it's easy to skip over them, but at the same time, I don't want to limit them because this is universal application. This is not just those people against these people, or our people against their people. It, it, there are universal applications, and I don't want to miss, uh, miss all of them um, as, we, as we dive into this parable. So it's this background, basically, is these chief priests and elders are saying, who gives you this authority? Or in other words, what they're saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Coming in here and messing with these long-established traditions uh, and our laws and the way we do things. And so this is the background that Jesus tells. This is the second of two parables that he begins to tell this parable that we read. And so um, we're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to walk through this parable. This is not an uncommon theme. This is a biblical theme. Uh, of a man and a vineyard. Isaiah 5-7 tells us the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But he keeps going on. When God visits this vineyard, he looks for justice, but behold, there's bloodshed. And he looks for righteousness, but behold, there's an outcry. And so Jesus is going to carry this theme of the vineyard or the planting or the seed. This is a pretty common theme. Um, uh, and so it's, it's, 
this parable is told in response to who, who do you think you are? What authority do you think you have to come in here and do this? We are the elders and the chief priests. We are the keeper of things holy. Who do you think you are? So we'll walk through this parable together. As it goes here, what we see is that Israel is the vineyard that God had plant, has planted, and, and He has let out or leased out this vineyard to those who would be given charge to care for it, namely the nation of Judah and her chief priests and elders. And they were to care for and prune and water and protect the vineyard and produce fruit, grapes, wine. They were given authority by God, by the landowner. And when the season came to collect the fruit, the servants of the landowner came to get the fruit or his share. The tenants beat, robbed, stoned, and killed the servants that came to ask for the fruit that is rightfully the landowner's. Jesus here is, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty easy connection. He's referring to the prophets throughout the Old Testament that had come to Israel over and over and over again. In the name of God, giving warning, warning to repent, warning to turn, warning to trust through situation after situation after situation. Um, there are a lot of times where we want to kind of paint this picture of the God of the Old Testament uh, is different from the God of the New Testament, right? Have you ever heard this? You know, he's just old and curmudgeon and gets mad at everybody and is like killing nations off left and right. The God of the New Testament is grace and mercy and love and looks like Kenny Loggins and he's nice and everybody's, you know, and, and, and listen, God in the Old Testament sends servant after servant after servant. The idea that he's not patient and long-suffering is simply not true. He is incredibly patient. Every time God comes in and he's ready to judge a people for their wickedness, which I know on one hand we can't fathom, but on the other hand we can fathom, right? We all want judgment on those people, on wicked people, and every time God comes in and he's going to judge wicked people, people that are doing far worse things than we do today, and like one obscure person prays for God to relent, guess what God does? He relents. He's like, all right, I'll hold back. He is patient. And God sends, uh, everything after Song of Solomon is, is, a, is a prophet that recounts somebody coming to God's people or surrounding nations and telling them, repent, turn to the Lord, leave your wicked ways, trust Him, trust Him alone, don't make treaties with other nations, don't believe that your hope comes through this means or this means, trust in the name of the Lord. These are also the prophets that would declare at the end of every prophet in the Old Testament, there is a, a uh, there's like this Judgment, day of the Lord type stuff, and at the end of every book, there's but one day. They're looking toward the Messiah, the one that would come and prepare the way, who would restore their people. And, Je and Jesus paints a woeful and scary scene here. Prophet after prophet, servant after servant, prophecy after prophecy. God is patient, God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and yet every time a servant comes, 
They are pushed to the side. They are beaten. They are stoned. They are killed. And when it's told like this, it seems rather ridiculous and obvious. And so the next step on behalf of the landowner is kind of ridiculous. Well, surely, if they haven't listened to my servants, surely they'll listen to my son. And you're like, I don't know. And the landowners, their response is just as, or the tenants, their response is just as ridiculous, right? Oh, we've killed all the servants, but this is the heir. If we kill him, we take over the inheritance rights. Probably not. And so what do the the tenants do? They take and they kill the son. Now, why would they do that? Because that's what they've always done. Because that's what has been taught and nurtured. There's no expectation that their hearts are going to change at this point. Every encounter gets taken to more and more extremes. Here's the thing. The lack of repentance doesn't wear you down. It doesn't wear down stubbornness and pride. It only gets thicker and thicker and harder and harder. And then for Jesus, it sure seems like prophecy, right? What is authority? What authority does Jesus have? He has the direct authority of the landowner. He comes in the name of the Father. And he is prophesying what these tenants are going to eventually do to him. They're going to take him and they're going to kill him. The son is standing in your midst telling you this story about what you are about to do. And so then Jesus poses a question to the religious leaders. He tells this parable to ask a question. Uh, what, guys, what do you think the landowner is going to do when he comes back? And, and you've killed all of his servants and his sons. Now, let's just take a moment here. This is an excellent teaching uh, methodology. This is excellent parenting methodology. Uh, this is, I mean, there's a great, like, he allows them to participate in their own judgment. Right? Um, I, I've done this. You can, you can ask my sons about uh, uh, how I've done this. You know, what would you do in this situation? Um, uh, I, I've, I've asked my sons many times, what do you think your dad would do if any other human being on earth talked to my wife the way you just talked to my wife? It's a good line. You're free to use it. It it, it allows us to participate. It sobers us up. If we receive it in full, we go, oh, oh, uh, yeah, okay. Nathan approached David. If you remember this, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan approaches David and tells him the story uh, about a man who steals the lamb of uh, of another poor man. And so David hears this story, and this is his response. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a horrible thing and had no pity. And then what does Nathan say to David? You are that man. The tenants give their own judgment. When the landowner comes back, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable death. And then he'll probably rent the land out to people who are going to give him his fruit in season. Huh. Huh. 
Now, I'd like to think these guys are pretty perceptive and realize then that Jesus is talking to them, but the way that goes, I, I'm not sure. He's going to take those miserable wretches, you know, maybe they didn't realize it because they come at this with passion. The other thing at work here might be this, uh, maybe they do get it, but, but maybe there's that part of human nature, I don't know if this is just me, there's that part of human nature that can't resist when we get to pronounce judgment on somebody. Is that, is that only me? Even when you know it's going to come back to haunt you? Like even when you know it's a setup? Um, they're doing the exact thing that Jesus is warning them about. I've, I've shared this before, but it's getting a little bit dated uh, at this point. Um, Tanya Harding. Do you guys know that reference, Tanya Harding? Tanya Harding was a figure skater. This was like in the 90s, maybe even in the 80s. She was a figure skater, and she was kind of a rags-to-riches story. She grew up in a rough neighborhood. She was kind of rough around the edges. Um, and she had made it to the Olympics, uh, and then she put a hit, a literal hit, on her her rival slash teammate in the Olympics, the, the beautiful and lovely and always beloved Nancy Kerrigan. And she had a guy go and like hit her in the knee. Um, so fast forward about 20 years after that, uh, this is just a few years ago, I was watching the show and it, it was, it was uh, World's Dumbest Criminals. It's what, you, you know, it's what, it's because. Uh, and basically, it's a show that is showing criminals caught on tape trying to commit crimes, and the way they do it, it just, it's foolish. And then they have these like B-rated celebrities that are making fun of the criminals as they're getting caught. A- and one of the B-rated celebrities that they have making fun of criminals is Tanya Harding. And I'm like, you're a dumb criminal! How are you mocking people? How, how are you doing that? I don't know if you felt this. Sometimes when you, when you hear the Holy Spirit um, and there's a humility and like when I'm accusing somebody of, of being a prideful, arrogant jerk and the Holy Spirit comes along and goes, hey, hey, Trey, you're a prideful, arrogant jerk. How in the world are you making fun of these people? Look at you. These guys reveal the hypocrite in all of us, simultaneously getting it and, then, and yet completely missing it. And so Jesus' response to them is, is not like, you're right, or may it be so with you. He simply quotes Psalm 118. Almost in disbelief, you guys are religious leaders. Have you even read the Bible? The stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. What does this mean? What, is, what does this mean? This is confusing, but let me, let me paint it in terms of the parable itself. The son that the tenants killed will actually become the landowner. He is the one that will replace you and will start a new vineyard with a new people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and you will be dismissed. And this new people will produce fruit. 
Paul lays this out later. This is, this is the cornerstone of the new temple that is being built, a temple that will, not, that will not be built on laws and religious rules and how much you hold up to it, but will be built on the incredible uh, and, and scandalous grace of Jesus, and this will be a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Why? Because it's hard to get. The, the sun doesn't come and destroy the, all the other vineyards, and he doesn't come and destroy the tenants. The sun comes and gives up his own life, even for the ones that would seek to kill him. And what effect does that have? Well, for, for the Jew, it takes away any notion that doing more law makes anyone better or worse than anyone else. For the Greek, it's foolishness because it's not about sucking the marrow out of life and living for the now. It's actually about giving up and sacrificing your own life. So the kingdom of God will be taken from you and will be given to, given to a people actually producing fruit. So what does that mean? Yes, there is an element of this will be taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles, which basically means non-Jews. But even more than that, it's, it's, not, it, it's more than that. It's not just like now you're disqualified and this new nation will come in. This is no longer a new nation or land or, or uh, anything like that. This people will not be identified by a land or by a nation or by a document. It will be identified by a savior. I read uh, there was a Missouri legislature that said, or legislator that said, you know, uh, Missouri is a Christian state. And I was like, no, Christians don't have states. We don't have nations. We don't have cities. We don't have meccas. We don't have temples. We have Jesus. And he will draw people from every tribe and tongue. And we're going to get to this in a couple minutes, but if you want to know why reconciliation and why humility are so important and why nationalized religion is actually despicable, it's because it, half of the New Testament is battlefront of the gospel being applied to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and some going, this is ours, and Jesus going, it's not, it's mine. Jesus comes in, he has all authority on heaven and on earth. He has the authority of the landowner. He seeks to do will, the will of the landowner, and yet he doesn't wield this authority like a sword like we would expect. The judgment doesn't necessarily stem from, um, the, the, the basically, that the tenants choose their own judgment. You have an opportunity to yield and give the fruit to the one who's properly, who is the owner or do you have the opportunity to double down? And the tenants do not fear standing before God in judgment. They fear losing their authority. They fear the people. They fear the crowds. All right. Application. And we're already long. 
Um, the applica application point here is actually confused scholars for a long time. What exactly do we take from this? What all is Jesus saying from this? Um, I think I can definitely give you the wrong application. We can make that part simple. Here's the wrong application. If you hear this and you go, if you hear this and you think Jesus is only talking to other people, yeah, those people really need to hear this. I can tell you right now, you're on the pathway to the wrong application. Um, imagine the religious leaders hearing, he, hearing and heeding the call of Jesus and actually repenting. Imagine them hearing this and going, hey, he's talking about us. Maybe we should listen. But instead, hey, he's talking about us. We need to arrest him. Ah, but we can't, because if we do, people are going to be mad. So we need to find a way to get rid of this guy. Their hearts had not been conditioned to respond in repentance. God's authority is not something we get to wield like a sword. It, it is something to steward with great care and carefulness, to handle it with caution, with a deep godly fear and awe and respect. Um, so, I'm going to skip the rant. The grace of Jesus will greatly confound our desires for personal autonomy, I want to do whatever I want, I'm going to captain my own ship. Uh, it will also, it will also uh, destroy um, our quest for uh, just a, a personal authority over other people, whatever vehicle we want to use for that. All right, I'm, I'll do a small rant. It, it, it seems, feels like everything has been put in a political spectrum um, these days. I, I want you to know, as your pastor, I fear standing before God. I want you to know that. I fear in a good way, but, in, but also in a fearful way. Hebrews 13, 17, I've quoted this for a long time, where it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. I like that part, but it also says, because they will, they will, uh, they will have to stand before God and give an account. Um, I am more concerned about standing before God than I am before a tribunal of conservatives or liberals. I see warning signs all over the place on both sides, but I see warning signs all over the place. The worst thing that I want for anybody is to be in this trench over here and go, oh yeah, yeah, well let's go over to this trench over here and start lobbing grenades that way. No, that doesn't do it. Or to be in this trench over here and go, ah, that guy, he's on the other side. We need to just bury in deeper and what we need to do is we need to find new terms to, con to, to launch at him. And new theories that we don't understand, but somebody else said it, and we're going to double, up, double down on it. 
I'm going to stand before God, and you're going to stand before God. In World War I, you had trench warfare, right? And in the middle of, of the trenches was no man's land. It's where all the dead soldiers were. And the, and the only other people that would walk in no man's land were the priests and the medics. My hope, and I believe the call of the church, is we are to be the people of God in no man's land. We're not to be buried. So many Christians I know are either totally entrenched in politics and think this is our answer and are making treaties with Egypt through a political force and there will be judgment for that. Or, or we're saying, man, I'm politically homeless. And, and my, my, my lament for that is not that we are politically homeless, it's that we ever thought we had a political place to be in the first place. End rant. All right. How do we live and practice life under God's authority? Here's the thing. God is gracious and gives warnings all throughout the Old Testament, always to his people, always to the leaders of his people. He gives warning and he calls to repentance. And it's not like, this is it. It is, this is a constant. Hey, you're going too far over here. Okay, God, you're probably right. I need to repent. All right, now, whoa, 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 because you're, now you're going, okay, I see that. To condition our hearts toward repentance. And it's not to never say anything. It's to stand up for righteousness and justice under God's authority, not in our own authority. And so how do we live that? It's, it's like, how do we live a life practicing to submit and trust? How do we live a life practicing that God is our great defender and not me? How do I practice a life that basically says, I am going to trust you on good days, and I'm going to trust you on bad days. I'm going to trust you in times of plenty, and I'm going to trust you in times of want. I'm going to trust you when I say something, and people are like, yeah, that's good, and that's helpful. Or when I say something, and people are like, uh, slow down on that. God is gracious to give us opportunities for repentance. And here's the thing. If you're here this morning, if you're anywhere, and you're like, here's the deal, I hear all of this stuff going on in the world and I'm just really, really, really tired. Let me give you the greatest news you could possibly hope for. Do you know what the landowner is asking for them to do? It's not to double down. It's to give up. Give up to trust me. Let me be your great defender. Let me be the one who validates you. Let me be the one who encourages you. Submit under my authority and stop the pride and arrogance that forces you to continue to, to validate your own authority. When they say hateful things about you, they said hateful things about me. But also check your heart because you can't just use that as an excuse to go off and start launching hateful things. Brene Brown has a great saying. She says, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to get it right. Humility. To be less consumed with, with 
speaking boldly on God's behalf and to be more consumed with dwelling deeply and abiding with Christ. To cultivate friendship and deep relationship with Jesus. So um, let me finish with this and then we'll, we'll pray this and then we'll do communion together. Um, I'm going to just encourage you uh, every day this week, or not every day, that's because we don't do things every day, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, there are certain things, but let me encourage you to do this a couple times this week. Uh, a, a prayer of examine is basically, it's a daily morning exercise um, to help us see where we are, to kind of look at our lives from an outside perspective almost and say, where am I? What have I done over this past day or over this past week that has been good, where I've operated in the presence and grace and mercy of Jesus, and where have I failed to see that, right? Incorporate that with reading Scripture. Allow God to guide you in that. This is not just like a mystical out there whatever. But here's what I want you to do. If you can try to do this at least three times this week, either in the morning or the evening, to sit before God, read a psalm, uh, read through a gospel, read what, whatever, wherever you're studying scripture, but then to take a minute and to meditate on it and to sit before God and say, all right, where have I in this past day or in this, in this past week, where have I trusted you? Where have I been faced with a decision or where has my heart been crushed and wounded or faced rejection or faced encouragement and I've and I have actually sat and gone, God, you're good and faithful, and I'm going to believe that. I'm going to press into that. And, and enjoy that, where you've trusted him. And then ask the next question, God, where have I failed to do that? Where have I taken on my own authority? Where have I decided to captain my own ship? Where have I felt the need to, for retribution and vengeance? to be my own defender? Where have I taken it into my own hands and either rebelled you against you or ignored you or forgotten about you? And then ask, God, would you forgive, forgive me where I have failed to do that? And for tomorrow, for the next day, would you remind me often that I have a Messiah, that I have a Savior, that I have one who has rescued my soul, and I can walk in that authority. And God forbid that I would continue to grow and get hardened and somehow presume that this life is mine instead of this life being yours. Would you guys commit to that? Three times. And I know right now we're like, oh yeah, but Tomorrow is Monday morning. Monday morning is a great time to forget all about God's existence. <laughs> right? In the mornings or in the evenings, God, where have I trusted you and where have I not? Where have I submitted to you and where have I not? And allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and to go deeply there and to day by day work toward actually seeing where am I trusting God and where am I failing to trust God? And allow the Holy Spirit to work and cultivate not only that mind but that heart to not let it get hard, 
Because right now, it's really, really, really easy for that to get hard. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I, I will confess when I look back over the last week, I see some moments that were good. I see some moments where I ran through all of my counter arguments over and over and over again, where I would type up an email or a post and think, this will get them. Uh, and I see, I see the moments where you have brought that to my mind and have freed me from that where I don't have to play God and I don't have to be the one to judge all the others. I can rest and trust you. And yet, God, I see plenty of times where I carry out that vengeance in my heart and in my mind. And it's not always against others. Sometimes, shoot, often it's even against me. My own shame and my own guilt. So God, this, this week, help us to see, give us eyes to see where we have submitted to your authority and rejoice in that, find hope in that, to see how refreshing that is, and where we've sought to take it into our own hands and think, I am the one to, to be the savior of the world, or I will captain my own ship and I will do whatever I want, or to either hammer down our, our authority or to despise others who have it because we want it. Set us free from that. When you commissioned your disciples, just a few chapters after this, you told them all authority in heaven and on earth is given to them in your name. You are the Messiah that will come and make all things right, and may our hearts be consumed with rejoicing in that, longing for that day, working and laboring toward that day without us presuming that somehow we are the ones that will usher it in. We ask this in the name of Jesus, whose life was given on our behalf, the great king who would not put, a death, put his enemies to death, but who would actually put himself to death on behalf of his enemies. That's a stumbling block to the religious and foolishness to the irreligious. And yet it's hope. It is water to the thirsty, and it's food to the hungry. So that, may that feed us and sustain us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.